Greetings and salutations, and welcome to the Future of Law, Good Lawyers podcast series dedicated to exploring what is and what could be when it comes to the business of law and how we as lawyers can improve access to legal services for everyone. Each week, we interview thought leaders in the legal profession on how lawyers can evolve with the times and ultimately live more fulfilled lives. Our guest today is Andrew Goldner. Andrew is a lawyer and co-founder and CEO of GrowthX, a venture capital fund based out of San Francisco. Andrew is a tough guy to put in a box. His resume doesn't read like a typical VC partner. Although Andrew started his career in New York, it wasn't on Wall Street, nor was it in finance or even as a startup founder. Instead, much like yours truly, Andrew started his journey as a corporate lawyer, cutting his teeth during the emergence of the internet. Though successful by every measure, Andrew became restless after several years of practice. Specifically, he took issue with the fact that the legal profession emphasized the time expended rather than the value added to the clients. After some deliberation, Andrew decided to leave the firm and embark on what can only be described as an eclectic journey. Andrew's career took him to DoubleClick, a startup eventually acquired by Google, Thomson Reuters, where he was managing director of Reuters News in Singapore of all places, and he even tried his hand as a New York City restaurateur. Eventually, all these roads led him to found GrowthX, a venture capital fund dedicated to helping founders find product market fit and get investment ready for their Series A. As you will hear, Andrew's earned wisdom both as a lawyer and venture capitalist makes him an ideal guest for this show. Our conversation covers Andrew's journey from law to venture capital, insights for lawyers working with startups, especially those lawyers who are a touch risk averse, how the path to finding product market fit is actually a formula, and why move fast and break things is often the worst advice a founder can receive. Whether you're a lawyer, startup general counsel, investor, or simply someone interested in learning how to grow a startup, Andrew drops plenty of truth bombs, a reference that you will soon understand that you won't want to miss. It was a pleasure having Andrew on the podcast, and I hope you get as much out of this conversation as I know I did. For more on Andrew, follow him on LinkedIn, and be sure to check out GrowthX. Links, as always, in the show notes. All right, that is it for me. Please enjoy today's episode. I'm here with Andrew Goldner. Andrew, welcome to the show. Matt, thanks for having me, man. I'm so grateful to be here. Let's start off by uh, just getting you to introduce yourself. Who are you? Tell us a bit of your story. Obviously, there's many different components that I think we'll we'll pull on today, but yeah. I would just love to hear uh, in your own words. Thanks. Well, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm here as a founder of GrowthX, but I think I'm also here as a recovering lawyer. We've got that <laughs> wonderful connection. I did start my career when the internet was first commercializing, and so I was fortunate to really just focus 100% of my practice on the internet. And like a lot of companies, I went in-house to an internet company. We can certainly talk as much about it as you'd like. I think certainly for your audience here in Canada, uh, the connection is that after I was uh, left DoubleClick when Google acquired us, I joined the Thompson family, right? which was an amazing, amazing journey that has, by the way, just also a lot of relevance to, to good lawyers as well and, and what folks are doing as both young lawyers and, and older lawyers building the business of law. I happened to be with them through the acquisition of, of Reuters. So when we became Thomson Reuters, I became the publisher of Reuters News, which really meant for me commercializing, bringing the voice of the customer and also technology into the newsroom. Uh, 3,000 of, of what I consider to be the best lawyers in the world, which I was just you know privileged to get to know and serve. And then you know after doing that for many years and doing it in Asia, decided to, to come back to America and also return to the early stage. I was I was doing innovation inside of a big company, 
you know, doing early stage stuff inside of a big company, but really wanted to return to, to doing true early stage, you know, at the startup stage and returned to America, you know, resettled in Silicon Valley, um, did a bunch of things. But, you know, through that journey, I had the pleasure of meeting who I now founded GrowthX with back in, in 2014. Right. We're a venture capital fund. We invest. That's what we do. But we invest differently. We can get into it as much as you'd like. Oh, but, we'll get into it. <laughs> um, yeah, we're we're investing based on the insights that we generate from helping companies get customers and, and revenue, rather than attending pitch decks and demo days. Amazing. Yeah. Well, uh, already there, I think we have a podcast worth of topics to explore. But just based on the nature of of who we are, I'd love to hear a bit about your story. About you were a lawyer first, and then obviously made a. a I'll say a fairly unusual transition into you know the VC side and everything. Not not completely unheard of. Obviously, there's many uh, well-known lawyers who have begun entrepreneurial careers as well. But I just love to hear like tell me what uh, interested you in law in the first place, and then how that grew into ultimately founding GrowthX. Yeah, I got really fortunate. You know, I came out of law school and moved to New York City, and you know, as a first-year lawyer, absolutely knew nothing about how to be a lawyer. Um, I was a transactional lawyer, and so, you know, for the lawyers in the audience, law school doesn't do a whole lot of no. preparing you for corporate. It does, it does a lot of teaching you about legal research and writing. So, I, you know, I literally, first day on the job, was given something I just didn't know how to do. But where, where I was fortunate is I knew how the Internet worked. Mm. And this was a time where, frankly, not a whole lot of people in the world knew how it worked. Right. And it was a much smaller cohort of people, an N equal to small number of lawyers who knew how the Internet worked. And so... I just got fortunate. I, I, you know, again, I didn't know much about the practice of law, but because I knew how the internet worked, I was really able to not only focus on only doing technology transactions, which was wonderful, because practicing law and, and really understanding and loving the subject matter makes everything different. But it was also pioneering. I'm an early stage person, and that 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 has a lot of implications to my career. And I'm an innovator. You know, I I can throw some you know little rocks from the sidelines. And so I was fortunate to, to be practicing law at a time where, you know, putting out client memos wasn't a boring thing to me. Right. It was really interesting subject matter. I was on the bleeding edge. The laws hadn't been updated to apply to what we were doing. And so it was really an interesting time. And so I was fortunate to go to work uh, at Skadden Arps um, for a really amazing man named Stu Levy, who was pioneering their internet and technology transactions practice group. And, you know, we got to do licensing, M&A, corporate finance. You know, one of the clients was ICANN, the right. people that govern the entire internet. So got to do some really interesting things, again, as a junior lawyer, but really getting into the subject matter and seeing what was happening as the internet was commercializing from that perspective. But I knew, frankly, from very early on in my career, as I began to settle, um, and, it, and it really was a blessing to be at Skadden, but for me, what began to be a challenge was, you know, a profession that I had chosen that placed more and greater emphasis on the time spent than the value added. Right, right. And I didn't, I didn't really know what that meant or, or where that was going to take me, but it was an early seed. And then, of course, also, you know, wanting to spend more time on the marketing. Right. But my partner needed me to be doing billable hours. Yep. And though I appreciated it, enjoyed it, and learned a lot, um, it was those other things and wanting to innovate and think how we could serve clients differently. Because at the time, Skadden, you know, I was in New York, I wasn't in the Valley, and Skadden was not one of the first firms to really jump into the early stage tech game, where we're not Cooley, we were not some of the other more well-known brands that were in the Valley right. when the internet was commercializing. 
And so it was, and, and you know, Stu was definitely pioneering this at the firm, but understanding how to, how, how can we structure the way we work with up and coming companies that clearly are not making the money that the Fortune 50 are for Skadden Arps, but will one day. Right. And Stuart was a very early visionary of that. And so trying to figure out how to do that, I, you know, I was a junior lawyer, so I was just there to see what happens, but learned a lot. You know, there's so many parallels already to what you just kind of described and what we're trying to do here at Good Lawyer. But I'm, I'm curious, how did you, um, you said you kind of knew how the internet worked at a fairly early stage. Uh, you know, I'm seeing right now a little bit of that happening with crypto. Yeah. Uh, I, obviously, the, the comparison is not exact and it's, it's apples to oranges, but, but I'm seeing a lot of young lawyers getting involved with that because like you said, what triggered there was the rules aren't written. We're applying blanket securities laws to something that doesn't quite fit. It fits sort of, but not, not in all just cases, securities law. I mean, you just saw some landmark things happen last week. In fact, Skadden just put out a great memo on it where DAOs right. um, are seeing joint and several liability for their members. Oh, oh, partnerships. Really? So there's a lot of interesting things coming. That is actually terrifying. I did yeah. not know that. Yep. So That's uh, bleeding hot edge. tip. Yeah, yeah, hot tip for anyone who's listening. <laughs> uh, there you go. Be careful which DAOs you join. Uh, you might be getting a bit more than you bargained for. Uh, so a- again, though, it sounds like you enjoyed your time as a lawyer, that it was at least productive, if nothing else. Uh, like you said, uh, an emphasis maybe too much on the billable hour ultimately, which uh, again is a reality of law firms. You know, they have to make money too. But uh, it sounds like you sort of landed in, if I'm reading it right, something in between a traditional firm yet something that has enough foresight to maybe give some emerging practices uh, yeah. a chance. It, that's a really brilliant insight. Oh, and, thank and, you. And, yes. I, and that's absolutely <laughs> right. And I, and I really, I, I give all the credit to Stu Levy at Skadden for that. He created that environment. I always felt lucky to be inside of one of the most renowned law firms in the world, but on a little bit of a different track than the traditional associates who were doing pure M&A and working on, you know, unarguably the biggest and the sexiest transactions right. that would take them into a lot of wonderful places. But I felt like my journey in Stu's practice group enabled me a little more flexibility on some of that stuff. And so I did. I felt like I got my cake and got to eat it too. Oh, that's fantastic. I'm just kind of curious because this is something that we're uh, very much focused on too, is entrepreneurs, founders, those high growth companies, exactly yeah. what you just said. They might not be uh, the huge files today, but tomorrow we know that some of these are going to go make some noise out there. Yeah. And as they grow, obviously we want to grow with them. But as a as an entrepreneurial lawyer, kind of putting on that hat, I what I'm really uh, recognizing, I guess, or at least this is my insight, is that if you want to be a good startup lawyer, you need to actually understand startups. You can't just understand law. And, and that's the insight I'm seeing because startups look a little bit different than maybe your kind of traditional corporate company. And you also, as the lawyer and sort of trusted advisor, seem to have to wear a few different hats. So not only do you need to know the law, but you need to know how to apply that law to a startup's circumstance. Agree or disagree, and feel free to take back your genius comment from before. <laughs> no, I mean, if your audience could be seeing me, they'd see me you know, nodding my head the entire time you were right. talking. You're spot on. Um, and I think it's a couple of things. First of all, you know, one of the most important concepts of the quote early stage is stage relevance. Right. And it's really important for founders um, as they're hiring, um, which is critical. Being able to attract and retain top talent, whether they're employees, independent contractors, or outside counsel, really important that you focus on the stage relevance. Right. I may be a seasoned attorney. I may be a seasoned M&A attorney. I may be a seasoned corporate finance attorney who's worked on the largest financings and corporate acquisitions. 
I won't be relevant, and not only will I not be helpful, but I can be dangerous at the early stage, not because of my lawyering abilities, but my stage irrelevance to understanding how this asset class behaves and what are the implications of the decisions that I'm making now and that my lawyer is helping me on now if they're non-market. You know, I, I tell everybody that we want to de-romanticize venture. <laughs> it's an asset class. It's, it's not public equities. It's not commercial real estate. It's not foreign exchange. Mm. It's venture. It has a set of non-obvious characteristics. And if you don't understand it, even as an investor who made money traditionally or in a different asset class or a lawyer who's become a, a partner at an esteemed firm, if you don't understand the non-obvious characteristics of early stage company building and investing, you really can create challenges for your client. Mm -hmm. And so stage relevance and understanding startups is really important, both the, the structure and the risk of the startup as well as the particulars of, of outside capital coming in and how to structure those deals. Amazing. I think that's just uh, such an important answer. And that's actually something that we're trying to do here. Uh, and it, it sort of emerged organically, to be honest. Uh, we, through our marketing efforts, did, did kind of figured out that startups were kind of our wedge. That's who we're, go we're going after, all of that. But what that had is an effect on our lawyer community is like, okay, we need you to understand startups. So what we're actually starting to build is a bit of a, almost an incubator for lawyers to learn how to do startup law. Because as you mentioned, it's not something that's taught in schools. Even I, you know, it wasn't that long ago that I graduated. And I remember it was in my third year, I took on a flyer, this entrepreneurial law class at, that kind of opened my eyes to this whole area and got me uh, thinking about it differently. And it excited me quite a bit, but it's not something that you traditionally get taught. And, and so to develop into one, it, it takes some time and effort and all of that. And I think, you know, that's one of the exciting things about becoming a lawyer on Good Lawyer is that you're, you're around other lawyers who are speaking this language. And yeah. so, you know, if that's something that interests you, obviously. But I guess just fast forwarding here because your uh, your story is long and vast yeah, and uh, we only have so hair. much time. Yeah. But I guess, was it a difficult decision to leave the practice of law to, to get it or, or were you ready? And how long, how long did it take before that you made that call? So I left... Skadden as I believe a fifth or sixth year. Okay. And it was not a difficult decision. And I don't mean that in any disrespect to Skadden. It was extraordinary experience. I felt it was a blessing. I got trained by the best. I made great friends. It just wasn't a good fit. Mm -hmm. Right. And finding fits important. Agreed. Um, and when you're younger, sometimes it takes a little longer to recognize that than when you have the wisdom of, of longitude. But I actually left and went orthogonal. I got into the restaurant business. Oh, we wow. definitely don't have to take any time on this on this podcast talking about it. But I just went orthogonal, and I think I had been thinking about leaving and recognized that I really wasn't a great fit for Scadden for some time. And it was, you know, it, it's it's not an easy decision to make. And so, really, it was the opportunity that came along to get in the restaurant business that motivated me to do it. Um, I, I had one restaurant in Manhattan, two restaurants in Manhattan, three restaurants in Manhattan, zero restaurants in Manhattan. Oh. Okay. Just like that. That's a whole nother podcast. That's we'll a whole nother, that's a whole and, nother uh, we'll podcast. Story, but yeah. as that chapter was closing, you know, I was thinking about like what I wanted to do and I had some distance. Mm -hmm. And so I felt like I, I wanted to get back into law. You know, I knew that at some point I wanted to go and either start a company or be, be in a startup. And I wasn't sure what kind of role I wanted to play. But I, I had these skills and I knew there was a lot about it that I enjoyed. I didn't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Totally. Um, and that's when I got the opportunity to join this startup called DoubleClick. And I discovered that I loved being a lawyer. Mm. I, my favorite time as a lawyer was a double click. Amazing. Um, 
it, it was incredible. The people were incredible. The excitement was incredible. I, it's what I called the retail practice of law. It, it was hand-to-hand combat. It was so different than Skadden. And oh, by the way, you know, I was now a cost center, not a revenue center. Going in-house as a, and a right. lawyer can can be a real drastic change, especially when you're coming from a, a firm so respected at Skadden that when you're on the phone with clients, they're very happy to be talking to you. And, and so it's a different type of relationship. Yeah. But... When I dropped into DoubleClick, my role was, you know, getting customer deals done with, with, with the sales force and also, you know, doing some technology kind of law. And it was great. I just, I thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed it. I, I worked for an incredible general counsel, Hillary Rosen, that went on to, to become the general counsel of a lot of other tech companies. And... I just, I had a great time at it. And so, you know, I was cruising it and really, really enjoying what I was doing there. And then, of course, when we went private and then ultimately got sold to Google, I just made the call. And, you know, in retrospect, it wouldn't have been the worst thing to stick around Google that early. But at that point, Google was even more of an engineering focused organization than it is today. It was still okay. early at Google and it was large. It was what, still what's early? early. So this would have been, you know, 2000 and. Three, oh, okay. 2004, okay. Yeah. you know. Or most of us were still using Yahoo. <laughs> right. Yeah, so it was, it was pretty early, and it was overwhelmingly engineered. So to, to step in and be a cost center, and not just a cost center, but a lawyer, and not just be a cost center and a lawyer, but in a company that is overwhelmingly engineering, um, really, you know, almost to the downside of everything else, it just didn't seem like something that I wanted to do. Well, it sounds um, like you learned lessons from that fit that you were talking about. Yeah, exactly. And, and, the and of course, and, yeah. everything was changing at DoubleClick once it became Google. Sure, of course. And so I think some of the oh, some of the, the intimacy essence, and the yeah. essence of, yeah. of, of what I had grown to love, I just made a call. And at the same time, um, you know, the same person who, who, who suggested uh, and helped me place at DoubleClick said, listen, I've got this really interesting opportunity. I don't know if you're familiar with the Thompson family in Canada. Then I said, well, of course, I'm, you know, Westlaw. And every lawyer in the world knows Westlaw. Right. But I didn't know a whole lot more about them than Westlaw. And this was an interesting time for what the Thompsons was doing. And so, I, you know, I translate. I started out as a lawyer at Thompson. And, and I, by the way, I, it was interesting. Because now I was going back to the larger, more sophisticated transactions that I did at Skadden right. and wasn't doing a DoubleClick. Right. And so having had some distance from Skadden, I loved what I was doing at DoubleClick. But then I was realizing, look, I'm actually missing... Some of that larger, sophisticated, longer negotiation, 100-plus page document stuff that I got into. You were missing that. It's odd. (laughs) It's it's an extreme thing to say. No, I love it. um, I love it. (laughs) And so that's what I was doing. And uh, and anyway, I was still still doing some very entrepreneurial things at Thompson while we were doing that. and, as, and again, as, as part of that, I was fortunate to be asked to, to renegotiate this media deal because I had some new media experience at Skadden. Uh, that actually led a small group of us to found a news business for Thompson that we called Thompson Financial News, which ultimately led to the acquisition of Reuters. So it was, yeah. it was, it was a pretty cool journey. That's, that's incredible. So this is ultimately a, a legal show here, and we'll, I definitely <laughs> want to get into the, your, yeah. your VC. But uh, for someone who is like, oh, Wow, that sounds amazing. I would love to follow in those footsteps. I work at you know a firm of some size right now. Yeah, is it jumping in with both feet? Find that startup, join like obviously maybe do some due diligence that they're actually going to be a company that can grow and all of that. Uh, like, what would you say to someone who says, "Yeah, I, I'm at a firm right now. Uh, it's been great, but looking for that next chapter in my life." How yeah. would you go about that? 
I mean, I think certainly, for, I mean, first of all, I would say make sure that you're getting a specific and stage relevant experience that you can translate one to one so that you can add value on day one to the startup. A startup is not a training ground. You know, a startup is not a place for generalists. Right. A startup is a place where you can just jump in and add immediately value. And as a lawyer, we have we have a leg up because we not only have the specific lawyering skills that you know are required that we have <laughs> accreditation in order to be able to do, right. but you know we're also taught to think a certain way. You know the the story I always tell when I get asked this question is through the rigors of doing that sophisticated transactional work at Scadden, you know, negotiating 12, 13, 14 hours. And when the investment bankers and their clients went off to a fancy dinner and I was sent back to my billing station <laughs> to memorialize everything, what I realized is when you, when you reduce things from soft copy in your head to hard copy on paper, you're training your brain to think through things from A to Z. And where everybody else, the business people included, thought they had done that, when you're reducing it to practice, where everybody else saw a period, you spot commas. Right. right. And it really trains you to do that in a way that most humans can't do, can't build that muscle mass without that actual, quote, practice of law, at least in that one example. And so I think for the folks that are thinking about joining a, a startup and that are at a firm now, don't forget that that's a superpower right. you're bringing. And that's not just going to apply to, let's say, a contract. It's going to apply yes. to helping helping these folks think through things from, from A to Z. But again, making sure you appreciate that early stage is not a time necessarily for the structure that you're used to and the operations that you're used to and what you recognize as dangerous chaos and risk is actually how innovation occurs. And you know that's so such an, a great answer, by the way. That's that's fantastic. But that's such an interesting observation because that's something that uh, we've seen come up. Because lawyers have a reputation of being a, a touch risk averse. When you're dealing with startups, they have to live on the ragged edge of often, especially if they're trying, a high growth startup trying to make it. You know, they're taking risks, and that is by nature a necessity. I mean, feel free to disagree with me. You're the VC, but yeah, uh, you know, it's great. it's it's what you need to do. And I feel that lawyers sometimes we're trained so much to spot the risk and stop the risk and kill the risk, but you have to understand that that is not the client you're serving in this case. That's 100% right. Um, and, and then that applies, I think, to the practice of law in general, but even more specifically to early stage. My first day of law school, my first class, my first minute, it was property. And the professor stood up, and as he was interested, introducing himself, Professor Durham, he said, listen, class, I'm going to tell you something right now. It's going to be advice. It's going to be important advice, but it's going to make little sense to you now. But as you go on to practice law and, and, and get into your career, I'm going to want you to think about something because at some point you're going to need to make a decision. And that is, are you a deal maker or a deal breaker? Right. And that is something that I've thought of since that day. He said it. I can picture it in my mind. I won't name the year because <laughs> it makes me sound as old as I am. But I think that's true for all lawyers. Yeah. You know, and, 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 and again, like the, 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 the energy that you bring to a conversation, are you there to, to make the deal or break the deal? And, that's, and so that, that, that's important generally. But when you're at the early stage, especially if you're doing revenue generating contracts, you really have to understand the stage relevance of the risk and where this risk is and how that risk is going to grow and, and, and flourish into something that's less risky but is unconstrained. And so not only do lawyers have to appreciate 
what is a relevant and acceptable level of stage relevant risk that gets written into, let's say, the uh, template customer contract, you know, and we're talking about the things that we know and love, right? Reps and warranties, <laughs> limitations of liability, right. uh, indemnification. Of course, can't forget that. Right. <laughs> but that's really important. But the yes. other thing is the non-obvious characteristics of the venture asset class. And most of these startups, let's be clear, they're going to want to raise venture capital, not a different type of capital. Right. And if you don't understand the non-obvious characteristics, then you you can't be an effective lawyer. Um, the example that I always use, and I've, I've trained it a number of times, is the unqualified um, IP infringement rep and warranty, just the clean rep, right? And when you're a small entity, there's only a few of you, and you hardly really have IP, and you're not right. really present anywhere, when the opposing counsel to your venture deal wants to write into the Series A documents that, you know, um, you need to rep that you don't violate anybody's uh, intellectual property. I mean, at that time, it's like a, a pretty easy yes, because like, I mean, we kind of don't have anything here. But if you don't understand the non-obvious characteristics of venture, what you don't realize is later stage investors will never accept right. less than what you've given yes. earlier stage investors. And when you now grow and get larger, you now have an unqualified, no knowledge qualifying rep about your IP infringement that's going to live and breathe through A, through B, through C, through, through all the financing you do. But now you're multinational and now you have a lot of IP and now you have people everywhere and that can come back to haunt you. Right. And it's a perfect example of how a great lawyer who doesn't understand venture and startup exactly. can make a big mistake. Yeah, and I was going to bring it back right to that point where it's the marrying of those two worlds again, right? You need to understand your the context, which is known for every lawyer, but uh, particularly, I'd say, in this area. All right, so Thomson Reuters, who is a friend of the platform, and uh, we have a great relationship with them. But yeah. uh, what happened next? How did we get into GrowthX? Like, is that, uh, well, I mean, you know, I just I tell people, like, the the... I think the favorite quote job I ever had was publisher of Reuters. Oh, wow. I mean, it was just, uh, it was an adventure and it was a privilege. And I learned a lot about journalism. I learned from the best. You know, I began to consider myself among them. And, you know, it really just was a privilege. And I mean that. It was just a privilege. To this day, I consider one of my mentors, David Schlesinger, who was the editor-in-chief of Reuters at the time, and just a, a, a really good man and, and, and an, an extraordinary journalist. And so that was a great ride. You know, it really, really was a great ride. But I was doing it from Asia. You know, I was living in Hong Kong and then Singapore. I went to Asia with one daughter. I now have two daughters. You know, one of them was born in Hong Kong. I tell people there's a lot of Facebook photos we weren't in. And so really it was more about, it, it was two things. And, and it, was, it was time to uh, return to the United States. And it was time, you know, as I said when I left the company, it's been a it's been a privilege to make money for the Thompson family, and it's time to make money for the Goldner family, mm. and and it really was Thompson. You know, Thompson was a, it was an extraordinary time. In retrospect, I realized how fortunate I was to be at Thompson when all of this was happening. I was inside of Thompson Financial, and in retrospect, it really was an extraordinary time to be there with some really really dynamic leaders doing some pretty cool stuff. Right. And then Thomson Reuters was its whole new incredible experience under you know the leadership of Tom Gloser, who's 
someone who, who, who I respect a great, great deal. But it was time. You know, it was, you know entrepreneurship is one thing. Sure. And as an innovator, as an impatient innovator, you know, as someone who really wants to push the boundaries and move faster, Thomson Reuters wasn't the place for me to be doing that in a way that satisfied me. Right. And so you, you combine that with just wanting to be closer to family, wanting my children to have better relationships, closer relationships with their grandparents and uncles and aunts and all that. And it was time to come back. So rather than go back to New York, which we emigrated from to to Hong Kong, we decided to repatriate into Silicon Valley, the belly of the beast. And I was fortunate. You know, when I was at Skadden, Mark Benioff was a client. And so I was, you know, one of, if not the first lawyer working at at Salesforce, not not in a Salesforce. I was a Skadden attorney. Had the opportunity to join Salesforce, but that (laughs) that remains on the list of things I should have done. Um, but I was there very early, and I was, again, working because of my experience, especially with DoubleClick and at SCAD, and I was working with their BD team. Right. And I was, I mean, to this day, actually, some of the Salesforce contracts I drafted, the, the actual templates they still use. And I was just very fortunate that when it was time to come back to America and re-emigrate and to uh, get back to the early stage, I was fortunate to call back onto some of the great people that I was privileged to work with um, as outside counsel who didn't leaves Salesforce, who were at Salesforce, who were the, literally the first BD team who had gone on to be with you know Mark through IPO wow. and had left and joined other companies at the early stage and gone through them with IPO. So people who had some really amazing experience, Christian Myers, um, a dear, dear friend of mine and an early BD guy at Salesforce. And, you know, he just opened up his network and some of the other folks from that period of my life reopened their network in Silicon Valley and said, this is Andrew and he's coming back and let's just get him involved. Amazing. Yeah, I was very, very fortunate. And so I was on a journey to kind of figure out exactly what I wanted to do. And everybody said, listen, Andrew, based on your background, you really should do venture. And to be perfectly honest... And I want to be a little careful here, but I had worked with a lot of venture capitalists when I was at Skadden because they were on the deals that I was on as lawyer, and I, I didn't really like any of them. <laughs> I didn't okay. like the way they behaved. I didn't behave that way. And so I just I had always written that profession off because to me, community was always more important than content. Mm. And I just thought, that's just not a community I really count myself a part of. And so I, I, I didn't take it as a compliment when people urged me to become a VC when I moved to the Valley. And I jumped into an early stage company called GuideSpark, an amazing, amazing company where the head of sales had left Thomson Reuters to, to become head of sales at this early stage company. Keith Katani was the founder, CEO, extremely dynamic, awesome guy. Shep Marr was the head of, of sales who left Thomson Reuters. And to this day, I, he's you know one of, if not my favorite sales guys in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, Shep is just amazing. And he brought me on and said, listen, we need someone to, to crank out customer deals. We're getting to that point now where it's a little too much of the wild, wild west. But... I can't slow this deal down. Like I need a deal maker, yeah. and he and I had a great time. And I had an opportunity to join full time, but it just it just didn't work out for a variety of reasons. And so, you know, from there, I started my own company, actually with Christian, um, who I mentioned before, um, and that was you know what we call an expensive learning opportunity. <laughs> the um, MBA, it, yeah. it, it failed, <laughs> but it was an expensive learning opportunity. I, t- I tell everybody that you know experience is what you get when you don't get what you want. So mm, I'm a very experienced I like that. person. Um, <laughs> But the good news is along that whole journey, I was, you know, blessed to meet the people who I would then go on to found GrowthX with. And, and, and that's really where I had the confidence and the conviction and the perspective 
to know that I could practice venture differently. And I'm, I'm really proud to say that now in 2022, you're seeing a lot more innovation in venture than when we started, uh, when we started GrowthX in 2014. And, and that's also around the same time I was privileged to get into the Kauffman Fellowship. And that's, that's, been, a, that's been an amazing force behind what I've, you know, what we've been able to do and how, and actually how we practice venture is, is a lot and thanks in part to my, my fellowship with the Kaufmans. Amazing. So it sounds like your impetus to get involved was to do things differently. Uh, it always has a little been. Bit. Amazing. Love, <laughs> I love to hear that. It so, always has been. <laughs> so then uh, maybe, maybe just uh, tell us how it actually came together and uh, what was different about what you were doing. And then I'd love just to hear about, okay, so then did you take a perspective on the types of companies that you're going to be investing in? Do you, sure. do you go general? Like what's your approach? Who, who are you investing in? And all those things. I know I just threw three questions. No, 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 no. It's all, it's all really good. Um, I can tell you that the genesis of what became GrowthX, you know, was a noticing that I had riding the Caltrain from Palo Alto where I was living up at the San Francisco to go see a company that I was looking at. And I was I was staring out the window and enjoying the scenery and literally a thought popped into my mind, which was and by the way, this was shortly after I had repatriated to the US. So the marbles were still jumbled. Um, which is actually a pretty good time for innovation to occur, which is why the pandemic has created so much innovation. Interesting. You know, um, in any case, that in, that noticing was that if if in, if in Silicon Valley, if you know how to build products and you start a company, you're called a founder. But if you know how to sell products and you start a company, you're called a non-technical founder. <laughs> Interesting. And it's not meant as a compliment. Right. They've created a second-class status of founder, and it was a jarring thought because it made no sense to me. It ran counter to everything that I knew. I mean, I was raised to believe it ain't dog food unless and until I see a dog eating it. That's when it becomes dog food, right? Nothing happens until someone sells something. And also, by the way, too, and Mark Andreessen had recently penned what is now a very famous essay that claimed that software was eating the world. Right. And what we now know that Mark saw early and was telling us is that software is going to become cheaper to build and software is going to become easier to build. And we're going to have more and more and more people that know how to build and deploy software. And so we're moving away from the age of developed technology and we're moving into the age of applied technology. Mm. Now, of course, people are still colonizing planets and, and curing diseases. That's happening. But what you saw is the explosion of the application economy, right? The power of applying the technology has now outweighed the power of developing that technology. And so deifying the developer to the expense of and almost vilifying the person who brings innovation into the hands of the customer, it just made no sense to me. And I started looking around. And I couldn't find the Ruby on Rails of market development. Oh, a great analogy. <laughs> I couldn't find the Heroku of BizDev. Right. I couldn't find the GitHub of sales. I couldn't not bump into a coding bootcamp, a product development bootcamp. Couldn't find a single market development bootcamp. I saw the explosion, thanks in part to Mark Zuckerberg, of computer science degrees at universities and colleges around the world. But I would challenge you to find a single credit-bearing course on entrepreneurial sales. They don't exist. There's very few college and universities in the world that even have a single credit-bearing course on entrepreneurial sales. And yet, CB Insights and Fortune and others were now doing longitudinal studies and coming up with what is now empirical data that the number one reason why companies at the early stage fail is because they're building products that seem interesting, but they don't solve a market need. Right. 100%. I, I couldn't agree more with you. Period. Yeah, exactly. And so this was the genesis of what would become GrowthX. Yeah. Because, you know... 
I was, again, part of the training that I got from journalists, right, is just, you know, continue to continue to dig as much through you need to get to that ounce of truth and ask questions. And so I just started kind of anybody I was talking to, any parties I was attending, I was bringing this up. And, you know, most people just walked away from me. <laughs> but some of those people stuck around and they became my co-founders. But the idea was if, if, if because the founders of GrowthX, we are all experts at bringing products to market. Oh, okay. That's what we do. Excellent. And we did it as a venture capital fund because our hypothesis at the beginning was that if what we knew was more rare and more valuable, then we should be able to get more equity than the VCs who are writing the checks. And so we actually launched GrowthX as a consulting firm with that hypothesis that I then wanted to prove and then take to LPs to raise a fund. Mm -hmm. So just as we do today with all our founders, we're hypothesis driven. You know, you never want to bring your feelings to a data fight. You'll lose every time. And so we needed to collect that data. And we did, and we did relatively quickly. And so we raised the fund around that hypothesis. If we could systematize and programatize and create a lexicon that mirrored the go-to-product journey, but put it to the go-to-market journey, and we only did it for companies in our, <clears throat> excuse me, in our portfolio, then wouldn't we attract deals that we might not be able to get anyway? And oh, by the way, working with the founders that our differentiation is why our capital made us the right choice. Again, good fit. And to this day, we don't invest in founders who only want our money. If all you're looking for is money, we're just not a good fit. But if you recognize the need and want help going to market, finding product market fit, which is through customers and revenue and the rigors of those activities, you'll probably not find a better investor than us. And oh, by the way, for the investors, the investable insights we're creating, you know, we freely share because we love co-investors. Anyway, that's where GrowthX came from. And we did it, you know, very well and very effectively out of our first two funds. And then about three years ago, we would just, my partner Max and I, were not satisfied at the scale in which we were operating because it, we were really just a fancy consulting firm now inside of a venture capital fund. Mm -hmm. And, you know, carbon-based life forms don't scale. <laughs> they certainly don't scale like I'm learning that does. the hard way. Yeah, we all learn that the hard way. Um, and so Max and I went back to the drawing board and put more of our time and capital and created a SaaS version of ourselves. And that's now how we have scaled and GrowthX is now actively engaged around the world, including gratefully, you know, the great province of Alberta, where we've now just launched the Alberta Innovates Revenue Accelerator. It's the only accelerator in the world that's dedicated 100% to customer and revenue. And if you get back to the origin of GrowthX and what we pitched our LPs on, it's just the only legal form of insider trading in North America. Right, right. Oh, and it just makes way, yeah. a sense. It just makes more sense than the pitch deck and the demo. So I, so I, say, I tell people that what Mark Benioff did to on-premise software, I want to do to the demo day. Wow. That's awesome. That's awesome. So then, and again, I, I'm sure uh, you would agree with me, and, and it's obviously no slag on developers because they're critical to really any tech company, obviously, but maybe sometimes those other parts are ignored, which are critical. So do you then target like developer founders that need that help with the product market fit? Or do you, is it just a great writ idea large. that you think you can help bring to market? Like what founders writ large, it's, I mean, yeah. certainly developers might struggle with, but frankly, unfortunately, just about every founder struggles with it. I mean, imagine large swaths of your population dying of the common cold. That's what's happening. The failure rate, which is now accepted and tossed off almost ironically, ought to be completely unacceptable. Oh, I love that. Especially to an economy like Alberta, where this is not a game. We're not looking to be in Hollywood. We're not looking to be published in mainstream media. We're looking to create jobs. We're looking to fuel economy. We're looking to reskill and upskill people. Yeah. This is important. And so a 90% failure rate, when it's based on the common cold, 
ought to be unacceptable, right? And so for us, you know, we, we've now proven through our program that while your product and your market may be unique, the path to finding product market fit is not. It's a formula. So we are industry and sector agnostic. We sit between your MVP and product market fit. That's where we live and breathe. And again, you know, the outcome that we promise is not product market fit because we don't sell snake oil. <laughs> the output that we promise and we never fail to deliver is the truth. And so like any scientist that follows the scientific method, you're not looking to prove yourself right. You're seeking the truth and you want to get there efficiently. And so our stage, whether your community calls it A or pre-seed or A plus or pre-A, whatever, it's between MVP and product market fit. And by the way, we don't just toss the product market fit term around Mm -hmm. to sound smart or to intimidate. We actually define it and we define it. Most people don't define it. Our definition of product market fit is where a known and repeatable set of market activities creates a known and repeatable set of market results. That's where you have product market fit. That's series A. That's synonymous with scale. That's synonymous with I need a VP of sales. That's, that is product market fit. So anywhere between MVP and product market fit. Revenue. We hear it all the time. Do we, do we look at pre-revenue? Of course we do. Revenue is an indicia of product market fit. It is not dispositive of product market mm-hmm. fit. And in fact, we think it's one of the leading false positives of product market Interesting. fit. Interesting. Because revenue, where you're not intimate and you don't know much about it and you don't know whether it could be profitable and you don't know how predictable it is and you don't know how scalable it is, I'm not going to give you the same credit for all that revenue that you've stacked in your bank. And if I put proverbially your bank account in front of us and I select a Canadian dollar out of it and point to it and ask you to tell me in graphic detail intimately how profitable that dollar is or could be and you don't know, then how do I know that you're not going to use my capital to go chase more unprofitable dollars? Mm. And so, How do you tell the difference real quick? Well, that's the bottom-up approach to go to market, right? Now what you're talking about is the new standard of investor readiness. So investor readiness used to be equated to pitch decks and demo days. Mm-hmm. And then it became equated to revenue. But now it's revenue that is the direct result of a systematic approach to go to market. And so the way you differentiate is rather than total addressable markets with lots of trailing zeros, that's top down. You got to go to the bottom up and you got to talk about, okay, and this is not persona based. You can't go to market with personas. Personas are great for the idea stage. You got to get intimate with the person and the essence and the origin of that dollar and understand across all those people who have the problem that you purport to solve, who are the ones that have it in a most acute way, that understand it, that recognize it, that prioritize it, that are trying to solve it, where your product, not your product roadmap, your product can deliver the value that they're looking for to solve the problem right now in a way that allows you to begin marching into the product into the market, find product market fit, and then expand. And so when you really get to the particulars of that dollar, you really begin to understand whether it just came from a referential sale, which by the way, we love referential sales, but we don't love it because of the revenue count. We love it because of the learning opportunity. Learning precedes revenue. And so revenue to me is just a full cycle of learning. But if you can't tell me anything about what you've learned from the revenue, then you've wasted that. Unprofitable revenue affords the learning that gets you to profitability, right? right? And so it's not an easy question to answer. 
Um, but, you know, I can tell you one of my favorite questions that I ask any founder that's pitching me at some point during their pitch, and which is depending on what time it is, let's say it's 2 in the afternoon, I'll ask the founder what time they got up. And if it's 7 a.m., I'll say, okay, I want you right now to account, like as if you were a lawyer needing to account for every six minutes of your time, every tenth of an hour. I want you now to tell me in six-minute increments everything you've done in graphic detail from the moment you got up and brushed your teeth, because I hope you brushed your teeth. <laughs> to the moment that you're sitting here with me right day today. And I want you to tell me literally what are the things that you've done to get money out of someone's pocket into your bank account. And if you quote a book or if you quote a blog, I'm going to punch you in the throat. <laughs> okay, so let me let me dig into this. This is a really interesting point. First off, let me just ask what you just said there. Okay, so you're going back to the six-minute increments. Yeah. Okay, is it not also true that that could contribute to the behavior that you were kind of saying, hey, we don't like this? Okay, so if I'm chasing revenue, every second of every day, well, maybe I am not juicing the books, but like I'm going after that short-term but non-repeatable revenue to make things, okay, here's what I'm doing, I'm, I'm out there selling. I guess like, it depends how you answer the question. If right. I if I said, Matt, how much does a, a Boeing 787 weigh? You'd say, I don't know, 500 pounds. Yeah. Okay, well, you know, that's not very helpful. But if you said to me, listen, it's probably got two engines, right. and it, I don't care if it has four engines. Right. If you said, it's got two engines, they each weigh a metric ton. It's probably got 120 rows. Each row has six seats. Each seat weighs 100 pounds. Okay, I don't care how orders of magnitude wrong you are on the on the details of the weight, but hearing you talk mm -hmm. about how you mm -hmm. got to that answer is what I'm looking for. So gotcha. part of it is I want to know, okay, A, are you going to get defensive about that way I asked about it? Because mm -hmm. the number one thing that we look for are learn-it-alls. We don't invest in know-it-alls because you can't teach them. You can't help them. We invest in learn-it-alls. And you know a learn-it-all when, when you meet them. So how you actually react, right, is the one thing. Second of all, again, are you talking about what you know? Are you talking about, like, again, you're, you're quoting something you picked up in some blog? Are you talking about doing things at scale when you have absolutely nothing scalable? Or are you talking about, like, moving fast and breaking things, which, frankly, is, is, has ruined at least two generations of founders, according to me, and, and according to GrowthX? Um, or are you answering the question, again, not necessarily using this lexicon because people don't have to talk like us, but are you saying, well, listen, you know, here's the problem we have and, and, and we're starting off with helping these kind of people because I used to be one of those people. I, I actually had that problem. I had a job and my job was to do this thing and I couldn't solve it well and I tried to find someone who could solve it and nobody could solve right. it. So I said, I'm gonna go solve it. So, okay. Good fact number one, whether that's the right customer you should be selling to or not, I don't care. What I care about is you didn't just take a military swag, which stands for strategic wild ass gas. You actually used intelligence, intuition, acumen, relationships, and experience to form a hypothesis, which you may be wrong at, but hey, this is why we're doing this. And these are the things we're doing to try to acquire, like how you answer the question, right? Mm -hmm. and, but by the way, it doesn't usually even get to that level because typically when I ask a founder that question, the, the six minute increments add up to about 12 minutes I was gonna say, I might, I might have a tough time answering that question because days pass quickly and you're doing all this stuff. You're doing all this stuff. That's why I have a to-do list now. It's like sure. keep myself organized. But when, yeah. you're, when you're put to the question, what you're going to find is like most founders, you're probably over-rotating towards product and not market. And if you're on market, you're, you're wandering the desert. Imagine if you guys at Good Lawyer built your product by just figuring shit out from scratch. 
Imagine if you needed a payment gateway at Good Lawyer and you decided to just code one from scratch. Right. Instead of APIing, right? Yeah. That's the way our founders go to market today. Right? So imagine the approach to go to product and that's the approach to go to market, right? And so again, it's not it's A, are you spending any time on it or do you think your product is so innovative it'll sell itself? Right. Um and B, you know, are you just wandering the desert and counting all revenue equally? Um, and because that that you know that's a challenge. So what I'm hearing you say is, uh, especially with the founders, is you're looking for someone who has sort of a systematic approach. Saying, hey, when I pull this lever, we expect this to happen. And even if they're wrong, at least then they can learn from that in a systematic way, right? And, and hopefully, you know, adjust course as all startups need to do. Uh, do you ever tell? startups to slow down then because you just talked about you know move fast and break sure things do. and all that it was like does, do you ever have to say hey well, you guys need to just like pump the brakes here a little bit figure out what exactly you're doing and come up with a bit more of a, a strategic maybe scientific method type game plan well i'll just i'm going to quote my co-founder max um who loves to quote and is spot on when he does the navy seals what your poster should say is not move fast and break things what your poster should say is slow is smooth, mm -hmm. smooth is fast. Smooth is fast. That's how you get to market. So, and yes, we recognize that this is a challenge for startups that are an experiment in search of a business model. That's what a startup is. We recognize that when you have limited time and money, um, me suggesting that you need to take stock, right? The biggest mistake founders make is they mistake being busy for making progress. And so, yes. so, so what we do is we try to help them use their time more effectively. We're not helping them do things they shouldn't be doing already, but we're helping them do them more effectively and efficiently to great results. And so, yes, um, you've probably heard the maxim that founders die of overeating and not starvation. Right. And that's it. The surface area of what a founder is going after. And because if you're not being taught, or if you just don't have this strong natural acumen, the first thing that you're going to do when you do turn away from product and turn to market is try to fill the top of your funnel. Mm -hmm. But if you have spent exactly zero time on the bottom of your funnel, which is by the way the signal, then how do you know you're not filling the top of your funnel with noise? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so to think that all revenue is created equally is to not think about market at all. And so rather than thinking about anybody who wants to talk to me and anybody who will potentially buy my product, because I need as many at-bats as possible, taking the time to understand that there are characteristics of the people that you're going to sell to that will differentiate some from others and make some more likely, more willing, more able right now to receive and enjoy the value of your MVP such that they can therefore go on to become and tell others, right? It is in some ways saying to you that, listen, I am not disqualifying the vast majority of your total addressable market forever. I want you to go to the moon if you want to as well. I'm just talking about right now. And so we tell our founders that this is not the search for Mr. Right. It's the search for Mr. Right now. Right. That's and, and all Mr. Rights are are Mr. Right laters or Mr. Right nevers. And so it's a process of finding that out. So yes, the short answer is we absolutely tell founders to slow down because slow is smooth and smooth is fast.
That is unconventional advice and kind of goes back to what you said uh, earlier that you didn't like the look of the VC game and you're right. doing things differently, right? And that's certainly... And, and, but by the way, let me just clarify sure. that. I'm not talking about working less hard. Oh, no, no, no. I would never mistake, mistake that. <laughs> when I say me, slow yes, down, yes. I don't mean no. slow down and work less. I'm talking about just slow down for a minute and think about where you're going to be putting all that kinetic energy. You know, and, and that's a, a lesson I've learned viscerally. Um, even as a lawyer, this happened, but it was just a little bit different in that environment. Here, I'm for the first time in my life, I was running out of hours. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I've never had that actually happen where, like, it, didn't, it wasn't a great day today, but don't worry, I'll make it up on the weekend. I'm out of weekends. I'm yeah. out of hours where I'm literally, I need to go to bed now, and yeah. I am not done. And kind of to your point, learning, okay, what's actually important? What is actually going to move the needle? Taking it instead of just, like, that busyness, okay, I'm doing this. Because it's a very, it's a seductive of trap uh, too because it's like especially if you're stressed it's weird to say that but sometimes answering emails is your vice because it's like it makes you feel like you're doing something makes you feel like you're making yeah, progress and it's like something that you can control and as you know in startup land there's so many things that feel completely wildly out of your control and you know and you, it's something to grasp onto but to your point it's not effective and and the interesting part too is in it can almost create a little bit of tension sometimes because people are saying oh why aren't you doing you know and it's almost like you have to stand your ground a little bit, but it's for the better of the, the company. So Yes, no, uh, you're, you're absolutely 100% right. And, and part of also what you're talking about is we call a market milestone. And it's not just I've run out of time or I'm not working uh, effectively. And I, you guys, you know, sometimes do this as well, potentially, is you communicate milestones to your teammates, your co-founders, your investors, your board members. Right. You set expectations, but you haven't done the work to really break down that market milestone. We have literally, and part of our program is market milestone, we have literally worked with many founders where they've communicated a market milestone to those important stakeholders, setting people up for failure and not success. And when we go through the particular breakdown in a, you know, in a very targeted and intentional way, which is what we do everything, and we see that funnels are nothing other than a collection of smaller funnels, and we go through that bottom of the funnel market milestone that they've just communicated and worked our way all the way to the top of the funnel methodically to see literally and practically what would need to happen for that to occur. The answer is that for them to accomplish what they've just communicated, they would literally have to break the time-space continuum. <laughs> and yet it's already out there. Yeah. We're, we're going to get to 100,000 MRR by Q3. But how? <laughs> yeah. Uh, again, we could talk for hours on this and maybe we'll have to bring you back at a, a later date because this has just absolutely been fascinating. But I do, uh, I, I want to know, especially because in the last couple months, especially obviously, or even last month, really, yeah. the dynamics out there have changed a touch yeah. and not for the better or maybe for the better because before it was pretty loose, maybe you might uh, describe it. But our, our realities are that interest rates are going up. Money's going to get a little bit tighter. I'm, uh, my, my question is two parts. What's getting you excited today? What types of companies are you seeing that you're saying, oh, there's there's action there and secondly how is this recent downturn affecting your decision-making process if at all well I mean obviously like a lot of people we're pretty excited about web 3 um, because I think it's it's just yet another opportunity for the maker class including by the way lawyers you know it's an exciting uh, thing we, we don't really get caught up in the, the kind of the hype of crypto but web 3 certainly you know blockchain love it but probably more private blockchain than, than public blockchain you know what I would say, you know, macroeconomically, what we're really excited about from an from a startup ecosystem perspective, and and Alberta innovates and the, and the Alberta provinces, it's really, you know, I'm not saying this because I'm sitting in Alberta. I mean this. They're they're really one of the best in the world that we've seen mm-hmm. right now 
in focusing on real results, mm. focusing on idea to exit, and making sure that founders in Alberta um, have the resources they need to be successful from idea to exit, to make sure that public resources are being put to programs that create the real results they need that are not being put to use in duplicative programmings, and that there is a chain of command that hasn't been broken all the way from idea to execution. And I'm not talking about equipping buildings to be nightclubs slash co-working spaces. <laughs> I'm talking about things that really, really matter, like commercialization and, and insisting on accountability and real results. And we're seeing that globally. We, we really are seeing Alberta being a leader in how intentionally and thoughtfully they're doing it. But I will say that the global startup ecosystem and nascent startup ecosystems around the world are really waking up to the hangover of the demo day. They're waking up to accelerators that teach you how to raise money and not make money. They're seeing that their founders are graduating these programs into what I call the trough of disillusionment. And it's not accomplishing the things that these societies need for their people. And so what I'm excited about more than just the technology or the founder space is I'm seeing more resources, public and private, being put to work to help founders meet and exceed the new standard of investor readiness, which doesn't mean teaching them how to talk to a capitalist. It means teaching them how to acquire a customer. And that, you know, accelerators is not a passive place. This is not somewhere you drop off your startups for someone to just oversee them to make sure they have Wi-Fi, kombucha, and a place to sit where someone drops in for a mentor chat roulette session and literally drops wisdom bombs. Like, this has got to be real results. And so I'm actually pretty excited to see more and more accelerators around the world. And yes, honestly, most especially across Canada, insisting that that be the case. Um, you know, Abby, obviously, macroeconomically, the weather's getting warmer, but the winter is coming in venture. I, I would say for folks that are pre-Series A, I don't think you have to worry about it so much. Right. I, listen, I think you've got to step up your game and make sure that your revenue is the direct result of a systematic approach to go to market, which you can do. Um, so it's an achievable objective, but you've got to know it. And you have to have resources to help you do it. But I think what we're seeing now with valuations and, and term sheets being pulled, or I think it's going to probably affect later stages more. Just because of the cycle of, of growth and exit, I think the earlier stage, we're talking kind of the angel, the pre-seed, the seed, there's so much cycle that needs to continue to happen before you really get to the place that's being affected now, that the thought in the asset class is that whatever we see now is going to come and go by the time that the earliest companies have advanced through the cycles and are getting there. But I do think if you're raising your Series A, and I mean I mean venture Series A, not what your local community of investors call Series A, um, you know, and Series B, yeah, you need to be thoughtful. You know, I'm not going to try to reinvent the wheel. I mean, I published on LinkedIn, uh, republished on LinkedIn the YC letter. Mm -hmm. I don't do that often. But I'll tell you what, when someone does a great job, I'm not going to try to restate it in my words and take credit. Mm -hmm. uh, YC put out a fabulous letter to their founders that was thoughtful um, and I believe spot on. 
and Sequoia just did something similarly. So I encourage everybody to read that. I think their advice is spot on. You, you got to behave right now as if you're a bootstrap startup, yeah. and I don't care I if you did one. just raise $3 million. You know, you got to be hyper-thoughtful about the people you're you're hiring. And yeah, you, you've got to remind yourself and the team that the best people to raise money from are your customers. Yeah. They don't ask for equity. They don't take board seats. They just want you to help them. You know, it's so interesting because so I come from a, a background of a family business that my uh, grandfather has now passed away, but he started back in 1975. Mm. And a lot of the principles that you just articulated, I learned from him and my mm. dad, who is now the uh, president of the company. And I don't mean this in a bad way. I mean this in actually a really fantastic way. It's almost like you have a bit of an old school approach to like, mm. you know, looking at, hey, we need dollars in the doors from the customers. We need to make sure that this is something people are buying. It's not some far off place where, you know, it maybe it's like, how does this actually happen to today and, and, and now? And, and again, obviously knowing that all the realities of a startup, it, it doesn't always happen. And knowing when that right makes now. sense. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I, I'm a huge fan of Guy Raz and how I right. built this. Yeah. I think, first of all, Guy, you know, and Terry Gross and others on NPR are some of the finest journalists. I love Guy's podcast. He's a great journalist. He gets with Heart of Matter. He has great guests. And, you know, I just listened to House, you know, a wonderful Israeli couple that started in Palo Alto. And, like, I think she, you know, she was absolutely right when she was raising capital for the first time and didn't want to raise capital because she knew she just shouldn't be focusing on commercialization. Mm -hmm. She had just started to build a highly engaged communities of people who were trying to remodel and people who were architects and designers. And what really she needed to do was just continue to understand that and continue to build an engaged community because if you did that, there was going to be commercialization opportunities and she needed the funding to afford her the space to do that. That was the right decision. Right. And so understanding in what situations that's the right decision to do that is also really important. Yeah. And, and you know, I, I immediately take back my old school uh, comment. Uh, maybe the better word I think is fundamentals. It's like, uh, no, but I, I genuinely mean that. Yeah. Sometimes we get away like, you know, and I'm not trying to call anyone out, but maybe we work. That, you know, it's sort of like, well. We'll when, take fundamentals, Matt. We'll yeah, take it. Exactly. I, I know what you mean by yeah. that. And we are, a, we are a fundamental. Now, we are, you know, kind of over the horizon we're not public equities fundamentals because we don't have a whole lot of historical financial data and a whole lot of other stuff to look into. But we definitely draw the analogy to the fundamentals viewpoint in public equities that, a, you know, let's say a mutual fund or others might look at. But yeah, we're certainly over the horizon. We're, we're innovative. It, it is, we're, we're doing things that are a step change. Um, but yeah, the, yeah, the fundamentals. I think, and you know, and that's one of the challenges with the story that's leaked out of Silicon Valley and that if we're not careful is going to impact and infect uh, Calgary's and Red Deer's and Lethbridge and Edmonton and others even just around the world. If we're not careful, what works in the valley and that leaks out of the valley because of mainstream media in Hollywood, the romanticization of startups and venture, what works there does not necessarily work here. And we need to be very, very thoughtful about mm -hmm. um, how we do that. Amazing. Well, look, I know uh, you're a busy man and you have many events to get to. And I uh, certainly appreciate you dropping by and dealing with me through the technical difficulties. <laughs> Again, startups, right? Yeah. yeah. And, and by the way, we are more than excited, especially after this conversation. I'm really looking forward to working with you and your organization as we, because we, a lot of what you just articulated, and this was a... Um, 
a fairly in-depth conversation, which I really appreciate. I listen to a lot of podcasts too, and sometimes the, the technical nuances aren't brought up, but uh, we, we got into a few of the weeds there, so I'll be re-listening to this uh, a Good. couple times. And, I appreciate uh, that. Yeah, and no, I really appreciate that. And then obviously learning from your organization, we're very excited to be involved. But I, I typically get one last question in just as a departure, and, yeah. and I'm changing it up and putting you on the spot a little bit here today. Please. But what is it that you wish every founder knew if there is one thing or or if you don't like that question i'll give you a second one where can you learn how to do this because what you just articulated is sounds to me like that would take three years to learn like you know like to really embody that yeah and to, is there a fundamental piece of uh, an approach that you'd like to see in founders or yeah, yeah. so i'll answer both questions. okay perfect love that <laughs> you know the, the first answer that i'll give to not just founders but just people you know as i as i get older and, and wiser with age um, you know, I would say the one thing I wished everybody knew is that everything communicates. Everything communicates. And, you know, ultimately what your personal or professional brand becomes is a promise of experience. And that it gets inhibited by or exhibited by everything you communicate. It's not just what you say and how you say it. It's everything, right? The corollaries you can't not communicate. And I mean that just for the people and, and how they live their lives and build their businesses and do their thing. But also, again, for the startups when they're raising capital, right? Who they choose to work with. You know, don't just listen to the words of the people. Don't just, you know, listen to the podcast. Don't just get caught up in their so-called reputation. Everything communicates. And ultimately what matters more than anything, and this is kind of the real answer for me to the question, is you want to strive for long-term, healthy, sustainable, nonviolent relationships. And let's be clear, violent is not just physical. Mm-hmm. Nonviolent, healthy, long-term, sustainable relationships. And that is as applicable to your startup and raising capital as it is to your personal life. And so being thoughtful, to, you, you can't live that life if you don't begin by first determining what matters to you. And one of the privileges that I'm sure you also appreciate and the blessing of being a founder is that you get to do it your way. Mm. But if you don't take the time to define what matters to you and your co-founders and your team and your family, then you're gonna get busy working someone else's priorities. Yes. And so start with determining what matters the most to you, knowing that everything else is optional behavior. That's what I would like everybody to know is, you know, having an abundance mindset instead of a scarcity mindset, the nouns don't change. But if you have an abundance mindset, you'll perceive those nouns as opportunities and not as challenges, right? And so that's my personal view. Um, In terms of you know, the challenge is there's not a lot of places. So, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm going to be a little self-promotional here. <laughs> Please. I mean, growthx.com forward slash blog. I mean, honestly, like we are putting out enormous amounts of actually and genuinely and like useful resources because mm-hmm. this is this is what we do and we want you to enjoy it and nurture yourself towards us. And so, and it's not just wisdom bombs or exciting you about how great we are or the things that we've done or other people have done. No, you're going to you're gonna learn how to do something you didn't know how to do before you read the blog and you're not going to just read it. It's actionable. We're going to package that blog with a resource that you can download to actually put to work the thing that you just learned to do, which you didn't know how to learn to do before. And most of it is how to go to market, but a lot of it is also about the venture asset class um, and actually how to raise money 
how to achieve the new standard of investor readiness and how to communicate it in a way that attracts a capital partner that shares your worldview. Back to that, you know, that first answer. So, you know, unfortunately, there aren't a lot of resources. I mean, we, Max and I have scoured the globe to find programs like we've built and we've yet to find it. And by the way, we want to find it because right. we the, the, the world needs it. We shouldn't be the only ones doing this. We didn't invent product market fit, but nobody else has put a system, a program, and a lexicon and a framework together like we have. And so for, for folks who are, are fortunate to live in Alberta, Alberta Innovates has made available to you the Alberta Innovates Revenue Accelerator, mm-hmm. which, which we're privileged and proud to have Good Lawyer to be in the, the alpha cohort of. It's 100% focused on customers and revenue. And for founders outside of Alberta, the Revenue Accelerator is what it's called, and we operate that at GrowthX. And we handpick 10 companies in North and South America and around the world with our partners quarterly to go through the same rigorous 16-week program. So I would encourage everybody to avail yourselves of the genuinely useful materials we have at GrowthX and look at our values. And if it looks like we behave in a way that's consistent with your worldview and we're doing things that you recognize you want and need help doing, we would really be grateful if you reached out to us. Well, after all of this, if you're not convinced, uh, there's nothing else I can do for you. So we'll, we'll throw all the links in the show notes and uh, you know go check it out, obviously, Andrew. An absolute pleasure. Yeah, really thank you, Matt. It. I really uh, am grateful yeah, for no. the opportunity. Yeah, it's uh, great to do this in person too. So uh, I hope you enjoy the rest of your stay here in Alberta. And I know you got an early flight, but uh, looking forward to when our paths cross again here soon. Cheers. If you enjoyed this episode, please give it a rating and be sure to check out goodlawyer.ca slash podcast where you'll find every episode along with the show notes and resources. If you or a lawyer you know would like to find out more information about practicing on the Good Lawyer platform, be sure to check out goodlawyer.ca slash four lawyers for all the details. Links, as always, in the show notes. Thanks for listening.